Welcome to the Diversity at Work podcast, where we unpack what it's really going to take to close the gender gap in the workplace. Here is your host, leadership coach and diversity consultant, Andrea Jansen. Hello, I am so excited to share this interview with you today. I got to connect with Jennifer Petriglieri, the author of Couples That Work how dual career couples can thrive in love and work. I read her book in the fall and when I was reading it, I have to say it was like Jennifer was in my head observing my life and how me and my partner have made decisions about our careers and our relationship. If you haven't had a conversation with your partner about what is really important to you from a family perspective and from a career perspective, the best time to have that conversation is now. In this episode, we talked about how to have that conversation, how to really thrive in difficult times and make decisions so that you can be successful in love and in your career. Hey, before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to take a minute to tell you about Ambitious Every Day. It is all of the exercises that I take my coaching clients through in the form of a journal to help you focus and take action towards your goals. And here's the great news. If you subscribe to our newsletter, you get 11 pages of the journal for free as a PDF right to your inbox. So head on over to ambitiontheory.ca and sign up. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining me today from France. Can you introduce yourself and describe what you do? Because I think you're a really interesting person and you do some really fascinating work. Yeah, I always never know which one to lead with. So I'm going to lead with I'm an author. Um, So I write a lot and research a lot. And I've recently written a book called Couples at Work. I'm also a professor at a business school, at NCF Business School in Paris, where I teach leadership, organizational behavior, and women's leadership in particular. I'm also a mum and a wife and a daughter and lots of other roles. So before, so you study women and leadership and how couples work, really how couples thrive. Actually, your book is the Couples at Work, How Dual Career Couples Can Thrive in Love and Work. And I've read the book and it was life-changing for me. I felt when I was reading it, it was like you were in my head, following me along in my life, like describing everything that happened to me up until this point. But I'm curious, before you got into this, what was going on? Well, personally or professionally, I'll tell you both. (laughs) Uh, Tell me both. Tell me both. Because we, like in your book, you say like, it's not one or the other. It's all happening at the same time. So So professionally, I'd always researched leadership and leadership transitions and careers. And I'd noticed this pattern that people would say to me, you know, if you really want to understand my leadership journey, you've got to talk to my partner. And I heard this enough times. And this was happening at a time when um, we had probably two, our, our kids are really close together and they were both under three. So we were in those crazy days, right? Trying to manage all that and two careers. And I really had this sense that um, it was not as simple as work-life balance. So a lot of the research out there was, you know, make a routine, juggle this, make sure you're both doing the right right amount of housework. And I was like, we're doing that and it's still really hard. And I also had a sense that 
it can also be really helpful, right? Having a working partner and being able to bounce off each other's careers. So there are these kind of vicious and virtuous circles. And it was also the time when Sheryl Sandberg was coming to the fore, you know, and she said that thing, like the most important decision you make for your career is who you marry. And I remember at the time having a double reaction. On the one hand thinking, well, yeah, obviously. And at the same time thinking, I mean, is that it? I just pick Mr. Right and then we live happily ever after. And it just wasn't my experience. And it wasn't the experience of anyone I knew. This was not a pick the right person problem. This was a what do you do next? And the issues many of us had were precisely issues because we'd picked the right person and because we'd picked a career we loved. Then the issues started. So I was really interested in, okay, how do our careers interact and what happens in the middle of that? So that's what kind of dragged me into the research, part professional, part personal. Okay, I love that. And I especially love how you say, because you chose the right partner, then it leads you to the challenging situations, not the other way around. Because I think when you first said that if you pick the right partner, everything's going to be great. And that's just looking at the surface. So I love that you bring that up and that it's really when you have the right partner, you are striving for more, you wanting to invest in yourself and grow, but it's not all cupcakes and roses. It's not all cupcakes. And it's interesting because it's a bit like this fundamental paradox of life, right? When do we grow? When is life most meaningful? It's when it's a bit of a struggle, right? If we're in our comfort zone, we're not getting meaning from life. We're not growing. And it's the same with our relationships. You know, if we're deeply committed and passionate about our partner and deeply committed and passionate about our job, that's what we all want. But that creates a perfect storm. And the question is, it's good if you've created that perfect storm, but how do you get through it and out onto the other side? Okay, I love that. So for you to do this work, I'm sure you had to do some personal growth on your on yourself, but also on your relationship. So how did you get to this point where you are confident teaching other people about this? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And I think, um, I think there's a few things. I think one is it's really important to do that personal work. Um, and at the same time, my work is not autobiographical. It's based on, you know, real research with real couples. And I mean, you started off saying, you know, you could hear my voice in your head. And it's probably because of the storytelling, right? Because in the book, I tell stories of lots of real couples out there in their lives. And so I really wanted to write, not just based on, well, this is what I did. And this is what I think you should all do because it worked for me, because I'm a sample of one, right? and wanted to get out there and talk to lots of different couples. So part of that comes from the research as opposed to just, this is what I've observed. And part of it is that, you know, Jean-Pierre and I have invested a lot in our relationship in having those conversations and really being deliberate about thinking through what do we want? How do we make it work? And, um, and how do we negotiate that on an ongoing basis? Not just kind of having the conversation once and right, tick that box, let's move on. Um, and I think, you know, we're not perfect, we've not got everything sorted, but I think it's that ongoing commitment to the work, which um, sort of backs up the science and the research. So was it kind of like, as you're doing this research, reaching out to other couples, just looking at yourself and just seeing like, what is working for them? Maybe I'll try it on me and working through it that way? Partly, you know, it's really interesting. So um John Pierre didn't read the book until two weeks before the deadline for the book. And we always kind of joke about it. So it wasn't that I was developing it kind of with us in mind. 
and um, I remember at the time he kept saying, so are you going to let me read it? Are you going to let me read it? And I was like, yeah, no, 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 no. And then two weeks before he was like, send me the manuscript. <laughs> and I remember sending it to him and feeling horribly nervous and realizing that, um, you know, his opinion was so important to me. I was like anxious about what he would think about it. And so I think it's been more of a process at the beginning of me reflecting on that and then afterwards working on this stuff on, on our own. Yeah. Okay. I love that. So did you hit any roadblocks along the way? Oh God. Yeah. Who doesn't? <laughs> I mean, and I think for us, they came at specific points of our life as with most couples. I mean, we, um, we had two children very close together. So our kids are 16 months apart which is brilliant now because they're best friends and they always like the same activities. But when they were young, it was very, very tough. And we also were not blessed with good sleepers, let me put it that way. And so I mean, we had a period of two or three years that were just structurally very, very tough. We were tired all the time. The kids were young, they were very needy. You know, they're that age where you can't take your eye off them, right? So you're just on all the time. You know, and that was a very difficult period for us juggling you know, just kind of juggling all of that and figuring out priorities, you know, and then more recently, there's been the question of, you know, whose career takes priority at a certain point in time, and there's both projects we want to do. So for example, I really wanted to write the book, but it's a big project and it's on top of my day job. So there's a big negotiation around, okay, how are we going to manage that? And now the kids are older. It was a negotiation with the kids as well, right? Mummy's going to have to work during holidays and and at weekends a bit, and how are we going to manage all of that? So I think it's, we're just a regular couple, right? Some of these things are thrown at us by life, and some of these things are thrown at us by the things we want to do. I love that. And I love that you talked about actually later in life, you in, engage your kids in the conversation as well, because it is about the family. It's not just about the parents. So I love that you've kind of gotten to that point, because I think that's really great and I am waiting for that day when my kids, how old is your kid um seven six and three. Oh, you're there you're there you can start it we can start it you can start it you see I think what people don't realize is I, I think as working parents we often feel guilty right oh my kids are suffering what am I doing to my kids but if you actually if you look at the research it shows the opposite it shows that the children of working parents tend to have higher paid jobs especially girls, right? They tend to go into the STEM subjects more. They tend to be more motivated at school and things. And I think, of course, the way you talk about it is different with your six-year-old than if you have a 12-year-old. But I think to bring your children into your work in small ways and make them understand why are you passionate about this? Why do you do what you do? What are you working on? It's actually a huge gift for children and a real role modeling um, for them later in life. And my mum... My mum is a professor and she's a parasitologist. And I remember every Sunday morning going into the lab with her to like check on the experiments and like her passion around it and how that made me see work as not as a bad thing, but wow, this thing that you can kind of have as a hobby and you get paid for it. Um, and so there's a way we can really role model with our kids, even from quite an early age. That's cool. And I just think that you say that, I feel like I've done that a couple of times. So my kids know I have a podcast. They're like, do you have to make a podcast today? And right now it's the end of March. So we are on home all the time because yeah. of the coronavirus pandemic. So they, 
are like, why, why do you have to make so many podcasts? And then I also published a journal and my daughter wanted one, even though it's a journal for adults, but she wanted yeah. one to color and just see what it was. And then she actually asked the question, do I need to buy this from you? Yeah. And so I think it was, as you're saying that I'm like yeah, I'm kind of already doing that like just showing them about yeah. my business bringing them in showing them in appropriate ways what it's like to be excited about something what it's like to create yeah. something and I so sometimes with, I think sometimes with our kids we often think about like we're proud of our children but we don't realize they want to be proud of us as well actually so I picked my daughter up from a play date a few weeks ago and the mother said to me oh my goodness, you know, she was talking about your book and like, she's so proud of you. And, you know, for her, it was something in a way that we would think of doing as adults vis-a-vis -vis them. And we don't realize that they want that too. That's cool. I love that. And that just, it just creates that role model, that motivation, that having <laughs> someone to look up to that is literally right in the house that you see all the time, exactly. every day. You don't have to drive them to the activity. It's just there all the time. So it is the end of March. We are in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Most people around the world are not leaving their houses right now. Why is this the best time to have the conversations that you talk about in the book? <laughs> For two reasons. One is you absolutely have to. I mean, what happens, I find in my research, when our lives are busy and we are a bit like ships passing in the night, is we can brush these conversations under the carpet. You know, I'll wait for tomorrow, we've got a meeting, you've got a dinner out. And this is when resentments build, right? Because we're just going along, going along, and then the risk is we wake up one morning and suddenly things really are not where we want them to be. Right now, we can't run and we can't hide. <laughs> so we need to have those conversations to get ourselves through this period, but it also represents a golden opportunity because many couples, working couples, whether they have children or not, we're busy people and we often don't make time for these conversations. So in some ways, this crisis is a gift to couples if we can carve out the space to have them. Okay, I love that. So in the book, you this is evidence-based research yeah. and you talk to both heterosexual and also same-sex couples as well, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay, so I just want you to describe the three transitions that couples go through because I thought that was so eye-opening for me but also not eye-opening for me because I'm like yep that makes a hundred percent sense yeah. but yeah. I never heard anybody talk about it that way before so I want you to describe that yeah so when I first went into the research I had this naive idea that like couples would face a challenge and then they'd fix it and then they'd live happily ever after kind of like the Disney princess model of course that's not what that's not what happens what I found is that couples really very predictably face three transition points. Now exactly what was happening in those transitions was different, but the dynamics of them was identical for all couples. And the first happens in the first few years of our relationship, and it's when I, what I think of as the moment we first become a couple, which is the first time we need to make a tough choice. The first time we hit a roadblock in the process. So let's imagine, I mean, think back to the early days, you're in the honeymoon period of your relationship, everything's wonderful. And one of the reasons it's wonderful is you've really not had to make any trade-offs or sacrifices. You've got your careers in parallel, your lives in parallel, and you've just got this lovely relationship on the top that never lasts. What tends to happen is one of three things. One of you gets offered a career opportunity on the other side of the country, in another country, now, what do you do? Do you, does one follow? Do you give up on the opportunity? Right? This is a hard choice to wrestle with. The second is maybe a first child arrives. And for all of those of us who are parents, we know that is the end of parallel living. 
we've got to make some hard choices around how this figures out. And for those of us who couple a little bit later in life, it might be, you know, do we blend families from previous relationships? Like how do we figure out the baggage we're bringing with us? And this transition is all around how do we figure out a structure to our lives that enables both of us to get most of what we want. It's impossible to have everything, but that we both have the career we want and the relationship we want. And if there's children involved, we can manage those as well. It's a very stressful time for couples because it's the first time they're going to have to really negotiate whose career takes priority. You know, how do we manage the logistics of our lives? How do we structure our lives? Where do we live? All these big questions come up. So that's the first transition. And that happens at 28, at 48, at 68, whenever we become a couple, really. We're all going to face this. The second transition is linked to career stage, not to couple stage. And this comes in the midpoint of our careers. So it's not quite linked to age, but roughly in our 40s. So I'm there now, <laughs> mid 40s. And it's a time when, if we think of the first two chunks of our career, the first two decades, our 20s and 30s, we tend to get on a path and roll with it, right? We're accelerating in our careers, we're building a relationship. Some of us are building a family as well, not all of us. And then we roll into our 40s, into mid-career, and we suddenly start thinking, this really the career I want and it's a time when a lot of people think about redirection and I'm sure you see this in your work with women going into senior leadership roles you know it's that point in their lives when there's a thing you know do I want a shot at this or not do I want to reorient it's a time of big transition and when two partners are doing this together it's incredibly stressful you know if you make a big transition left can I turn right like you know how does this figure out together so it's instead of being a kind of how can we make this work slightly more practical transition, it's a bit more existential, right? What do we really want from life? And can we get that together? And how do we renegotiate the roles and the patterns we've fallen into to get that? And then the third transition comes later on down the road when our social roles are changing. So we're no longer the hands-on parents. We're no longer the bright young thing in our organization. If we're lucky, we're managing and mentoring them. But our career has started to plateau. And it's a time of real identity transition. You know, who am I now? I'm not the hands-on mum. I'm not the kind of bright young thing in the organisation rocketing up the, up, up the org chart. You know, where does that leave me? And what are we going to do for this last portion of our careers? It's kind of an, a real identity transition among couples. Okay, so that is so fascinating. So one thing that I found the most interesting was the first and kind of the second transition. And that's when I felt like you were in my head, like <laughs> describing my life to me. So can I describe what happened to me? And I would Absolutely. love it if you could just apply the model to it. Yeah. Because I think we did some things right in our relationship, but I think we absolutely did some things wrong. Yeah. And we also fell into some of those pitfalls that you talked about in the book. And I think it's really yeah. important for my listeners to hear these. Yeah. Um, okay. So I'll describe what happened to me. So exactly like in the book, my partner and I, we got together, things are going well, we're both progressing in our careers. And I think we had that, you talk about it as the dual priority model, right? That's what you call yeah. it. We were both kind of doing things. I was traveling a lot. My husband was on the up and up. Things are going great. And we both lived in Toronto. So that's the biggest city in Canada. Lots and lots of opportunities. 
And then just like you, we had, our kids are a little bit further apart, but we had two kids in two years and we actually moved to a different part of the country within that period. So it was like one kid, I went back to work, second kid. And while I was on that second maternity leave, my husband had the opportunity to get a promotion, but it was moving across the country and how we made the decision. So we all, we knew in his company, his company's big. We knew if you want to be successful in this company, you need to move. That's just the way the company works. He'd only worked for one company. So he worked there when he was a student and then started working there. And he still works there today at that company. I had been switched jobs pretty much every three years. I was like on the up and up when I wanted my promotion, if the company didn't give it to me, I would just go to another one and get it there. Yeah. That was kind of how our careers were projecting. And so we had this conversation before the opportunity came up and we said, based on the fact that you've been there for so many years, I switch jobs all the time. If there's an opportunity to move, we will invest in your career in your company. And then it came and the decision was made pretty easily. And then we moved. But what I think we missed was because I was on maternity leave. So I wasn't going to work every day. I don't think I realized what I was giving up. Yeah. And it's classic. And I'm laughing because one of the couples in the book is a couple who used to, who lived in Toronto. Oh, really? <laughs> Before they were going to get married. She got offered a job in Vancouver and it was like, do we go? And they, they, they're slightly different. They based purely on the money, but it's a similar trap. And it very often happens for women around that age. We have children, if we're going to have children, and this makes it even more difficult because what happens is two things. One is when we get a decision like that on the table, our decision-making horizon shrinks right to the here and now I have this offer on the table. It looks great. You're on maternity leave. You're not working anyway. Why not? Right. And from that time perspective, rationally, it makes sense. Right. It it does make sense. And you could say it was the right decision. However, our time horizon is a lifespan, right? And a career span. And the problem when we don't, and of course, we're not going to take into account the whole career span. The problem when we don't take into account slightly more medium term thinking, say the next two to four years, is that's when we're likely to make mistakes. Now, it may not have been a mistake. (laughs) I'm not going to ask you whether it was or not. But this is I don't think it was a mistake. Don't worry, it wasn't a mistake. This is when regret comes in because people move and then wow I wasn't expecting this and I thought I'd find a job but I couldn't find a job or it was much harder to find a job or like I didn't think through leaving all my social contacts and things like this and what tends to happen when we have a decision based on that on on job opportunity is we focus our decision making criteria on two things one is money and and the second is quote unquote job prospects, right? You're saying with your husband's company, he couldn't get higher up unless he moves around. Now, these are not bad decision criteria, but they're terrible decision criteria if taken alone. Because, you know, we all need money. However, the reason you do this job as opposed to another job is not the money, right? It's because you're passionate about it. You connect to people, you learn things, et cetera, et cetera. And so simply deciding on the money is just doesn't make sense because it doesn't actually align with our real priorities. Likewise, and of course, the times we're living in now really prove it. 
But job opportunities are never certain. It's very hard these days to predict what you will earn in the future or the position you'll reach to given what you've got now because we're living in an uncertain world there's layoffs it's very rare for people to stick with the same company and so to look for a job opportunity today and say that's that's going to give us x in the future you know we don't have crystal balls no one can tell that and so the problem here boils down to you're limiting your decision criteria to one or two things when actually what you value in life is much more than that and that's a big trap that couples fall into in this first transition. And I think for us, like I would, I would say that this move was a great decision. Um, we moved from a big city, which is Toronto to Halifax, which is a tiny little city. And from a family perspective, from a lifestyle perspective, it's a lot better. But I also, I feel like I got to that second transition early, right around the same time in where I used to work in corporate. I used to be a marketing manager. That's what I was doing. And yeah. I decided to become an entrepreneur after this move happened. So lots of transitions happened for me at that time. And sometimes I think, and this is like, there would be more prospects for my business if it was located in Toronto versus in Halifax. So that is absolutely something that I think about, which now I've actually been traveling back to Toronto more often anyways. And I'm going to tell you more about this later because it's just like the personal and the professional yeah. has just been intertwined so perfectly. Um, but one thing I found was at the beginning, when we first moved here, my husband had a new job. I was trying to get my business off the ground and we fell into that financial trap because he had a stable career with a salary and I was an entrepreneur trying to get, get a business off the ground. And so who took care of the kids more, who, had more yeah. time to invest in my in their career. It was like, I didn't have as much time to invest in the business. And we made the decision based on that financial trap. So we absolutely fell into that. I saw that from the book. Um, but now we're at this place and I, my husband and I had this conversation. So at Christmas, he saw the book laying around the living room and he decided <laughs> to read it on his own. So after he started you reading it- He placed it, right? <laughs> Yes. I don't know, actually. I think he was actually motivated himself to read it. Um, but we're at this place now where he's comfortable in his career. When we first moved here, he was in a stretch role trying to figure it out. And it was really that his prior, his career was the priority. And now I've been kind of laying the groundwork in my business for a couple of years and now it's ready to scale. So we had this conversation a couple of months ago about taking that ship. So his yeah. career has been the priority for a while. And now it's my turn. Like there's this opportunity for me to level up, scale, scale, but it's going to take some work. So how do we successfully make that transition? Because I feel like we're struggling with how does that, that work? We both want it that way. My husband has really stepped up with the kids, does all the, like, all those things that you say, like you need a schedule, you need to split the shorts. We're doing all of that, but I still feel like we're not perfect. So what, how do we up-level this? Okay. So first of all, perfect is not the goal, right? Perfect does not exist. Oh yeah. Which yes. okay. <laughs> is really boring anyway. You don't want to be perfect. So I think you're doing all the right things. I think firstly, it takes time. This is not a transition to, to kind of level up or, or you kind of go into the primary role for a bit that you can sit down, plan on an Excel spreadsheet and then tomorrow it happens. 
because it takes time to get out of our habits. And I am guessing it takes time for you to let go of some of your habits as well. And I know this from my perspective as a mother, you know, it's like, well, I kind of do that job best. So I'm just going to keep doing it around the sidelines. So I think, I think it's a, it's a stepping up and it's also a letting go. And this is an issue many women have is with the letting go as well. And also in terms of your business, it still takes time to scale, right? And so what you'll see is the transition. And now I'm doing a movement, which no one will hear on the podcast, but it's like gradually one person steps up while the other steps back at home and steps up at work. And this will occur really over a period, probably of a year. And so it sounds like you're in the middle zone now where it's starting to shift, but there's a question like, is this getting anywhere? And it's probably because you're in that transition zone in the middle. And I would say, it sounds like you're doing the right things, you know, stick with it. Another great way of diary is diarying, but this is not an every week thing with a transition like this, it's every month, like how are things shifting month by month? Because week by week, it can seem so gradual, we're not getting anywhere. I also think with kids your age, you should be telling them about the transition too. Because a lot of the, the things that pull us back into our familiar roles are our children because they know that mummy always does this. So I'm just going to go and ask mummy. I'm not even going to go and ask, ask daddy or the other parent. And so if they understand the roles are changing too, that will allow, you know, that will loosen some of the ties on you to take off. I love that one. And I feel like we have been doing it given that we are working from home and my three children are downstairs while I'm, we are recording this podcast. And the way we've kind of scheduled things right now is I'm a morning person. So I try to get my work done from 5am to 9am. And I set, made it clear to my partner, you're on for these hours because I need to do that. But the kids immediately wake up and they come up to my office and ask me for Cheerios or an apple or whatever. And I think it's just that training of the kids and letting them know. And I've been telling them like, no, you have to go ask daddy, but that it takes a while to, for children to shift behavior. So I love that you brought that up. So thank you. It takes a while to shift, but also five to nine is a lot less than half the day. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, are you, is that all you working? I'm working that. And then right now from 12 to two and then after five, if we need to, because my husband's, um, in meetings all day long. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. So if we use, and we use the video for part of the day as well, if needed. Yeah. 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 I mean, these are really exceptional times and also it's time when, a little bit all bets are off right I think we have to not just adapt our routines but really find a new routine that fits just this period and make it very clear to our children and everyone around us this is a special time this is how it's working during this time and I think even for small kids I'm thinking of your your smaller two who maybe can't read yet you know just making a nice little schedule with colors to know when is it mummy time and when is it it daddy time and kind of splitting it up by meal times or something so they get it that's it's a great idea to um to really visually demarcate the day that's amazing and that the thing is we're going to do this now and that will just once things get back tomorrow that will carry into the normalcy yeah. of what happens 
So I know you, I read it. You must lock your office door. <laughs> yes, I need to actually buy a lock for it. <laughs> something. The hardware store is still open here. So I will get one today. That's a great idea. Um, I read in a Harvard Business Review article that you wrote, I think last week, about how dual career couples can work through this crisis. And you talked about this idea of a deal. And I think that stems from your book. Like the deal is really the conversation and that keeps going. And the deal is like this living document that you have with your partner. Can you kind of describe this concept of a deal? Because I think it was really brilliant. Yeah. So I, what I find in my research is all couples have a deal. The question is, do they discuss it and explicitly agree it or not? Right. And the deal is really the pattern you fall into, whether it's spoken and unspoken around whose career takes priority, who takes care of the work, practical and emotional in the family. Right, who structures the day, who takes on those roles. And what we find in romantic partners is very often they adopt a divide and conquer strategy when it comes to roles, both practical and emotional. So very often one partner will be the organizer of the family or one partner might be the socializer of the family and kind of arrange all the parties and things. One partner might be the emotional container of the family. We tend to split these roles. And, um, and all couples have a deal around how this work gets divided and how careers are prioritized. There's nothing wrong with having a deal. The issue is when that deal is not negotiated, you just fall into it. Because what happens is this is when resentment builds up and why am I always the one doing X kind of thing. Um, and what I find was that over the long term, the couples who were the most successful, and by successful, I mean, they felt their careers were going well and they felt their relationships were going well, were couples who really on, in an ongoing way deliberately talked about their deal and um, discussed it, negotiated it and agreed it. Now, I know some people don't like the word deal. Use what word you like. <laughs> um, but we, we all know what we're talking about, right? It's the unspoken agreement, the deal, the contract, whatever you want to call it, around how your lives fit together. And the key is to openly discuss it. Now, at a time like this, where we're with each other under one roof 24-7, that becomes even more important. And our deals may shift. Well, they're going to have to shift, right, um, to account for that. And that's really the most important thing you can do as a couple and have this as an ongoing conversation as part of the fabric of your relationship, really. And so I have two questions. So my first question is if people don't have a deal, they've never talked about it before and they've kind of gone through these transitions without passively going through it, where do they need to go back into the past and revisit that? Or do you just start from where you are and move forward? It's probably best to start from where you are. Otherwise you're going to maybe drag up coals you don't want to discuss. I think it's best to say, okay, here we are you know, what do we both want out of life? What are our priorities? And therefore, how are we going to structure our lives in a way that we can both get them? Okay, I love that. And then how often do you have to have these conversations? It's a good question. So it's certainly not every day or every week. Don't panic. <laughs> but it does need to be an ongoing conversation. And so I think, you know, my rule of thumb is a few times a year, two or three times a year, and definitely at every major transition point. And right now we're all in a transition point with the working, right? So we should all be working hard to furiously figure out the deal and how this is going to work. But then, and many couples do it on some anniversaries. I know my husband and I are academics, so we do it at the start of the academic year. And then we tend to do it sort of Christmas, New Year, which is a natural 
you know, point. And they're the two times where we'll very deliberately sit down and talk about these things. And then, of course, during the rest of the year, things will pop up and we'll revisit our priorities. But it's helpful to have, you know, some couples do it on an anniversary or, um, you know, at a certain point. I know my best friend is the chief financial officer. She always does it at the end of the financial year, which I find very romantic. But, <laughs> you know, whatever works for you, whatever works for you. Okay, so I always encourage people to take action after listening to my podcast to apply what they learned, but the action needs to be something they can do within 24 hours. So for people that are listening, they're like, I like what you're saying, Jennifer. It sounds, makes, it makes sense. I'm hearing it. I want to implement it, but I don't know how to get started. What can they do? So I would say tonight, if you have kids, make sure they're in bed. If not, you're good. Sit down on the sofa with a cup of tea or a glass of wine or whatever with your partner and talk through three things. And you might want to write them down a little bit first just to jot some notes down. The first is, what do I stroke we really want from life? What matters most? Now, this might be some career goals, ambitions. It might be some personal ambitions. It might be just the way we want to be together. Um, these are really the yardsticks by which you're going to measure your life. What are the things that are important to us? It's not the Excel spreadsheet of when this is going to happen, right? This is what are the fundamental, the values, the goals, the things we're going to achieve, however you want to say it. That's the first thing to write, share, discuss. So you both understand what matters most and what should we be basing our decisions on, right? The second is to talk about some boundaries what are the lines we're not willing to cross? So for you, Halifax is okay. Okay, what if you got offered a job in Vancouver? Is that okay? What if you get offered a job in teeny, teeny town, you know, Canada, is that okay? So, jog, so boundaries can be geographic. They can be time boundaries. How much work travel, you know, if you're going to Toronto twice a week every week, that's just too much for the family, right? How much is too much in terms of travel, in terms of work time? Boundaries are so important for two reasons. One is they take away uncertainty. If we both know we've agreed these places are in, these places are out, this time limit's in, this time limit's out, we know what playing field we're playing on, right? It's really important psychologically. It's also really important for decision-making because if your husband, for example, gets offered that new big opportunity in Hong Kong and Hong Kong's not on your list, he's not even going to have that conversation with his boss. And that stops the resentment and it makes the decision-making easier. So the first is what matters most. What are our priorities? The second is the boundaries. What's the playing field we're, we're kind of going to bat on? And the third, which is a little bit more difficult, is what are the things we're concerned about? And right now, people might have a lot of concerns. So that might actually be the first one you tackle. But it's really important to understand this because often we think we know our partner's concerns, but you probably don't. And if we understand them, we're much more likely to be able to sensitively manage them and really try and help mitigate them together. So those three areas, nice cup of tea, big glass of wine, and you'll be good. Can I simplify it for people? Yeah. I think today it should just be like, you have that cup of tea, we're in Canada, probably coffee, um, and a wine or a beer. And you talk about what are your concerns right now? And that's yeah. the only thing today the other two, the next one tomorrow, and then maybe the next one next week. Yeah. I think that's a lot. And I want to just get people get started in the first step. Do you like that one? Great. 
Okay, awesome. And if people want to learn more about you or get your book, Couples That Work, how do they do that? Okay, so the book's available at all good booksellers, Amazon, everywhere. Right now, I also have launched a survival series on my website. So every day I'm posting a video and a worksheet for couples to work through with really simple exercises to do every evening, like we just talked about, to help couples through this really challenging period of the pandemic. So if people want to follow that, they can go to my website, which is, I'm going to spell it because it's a very complicated I'll put it in the show notes. Put it in the show notes. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. (laughs) So yeah. Okay, awesome. So Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on my podcast, sharing your book with you with me and just giving me some insight into my own life and how we've been making decisions as a couple. I've learned so much from your book and I can't wait for more people to read it. Thank you. Hi there. Before you go, I was wondering if I could ask you a huge favor. Can you click on iTunes and give the podcast a five-star review and also a comment? This would mean the world to me. It also helps us to spread the word about the podcast and attract higher profile guests. We want to be able to deliver thought leadership around diversity and inclusion every single week and having more reviews on iTunes will help us to do that and help us to keep the show going for free for you. So please head to iTunes right now, give us a five-star review and leave us a comment. Thanks so much.